0: All right, good morning, church. So good to see you all. So good to hear your voices as we were singing moments ago. We're going to turn our attention to the study of God's word. So I hope you have a Bible with you. Go ahead and open it up to the New Testament book of Acts. No surprise there. Acts, we're picking up where we left off last week. So get to Acts chapter 13. All right, Acts 13, hopefully you're there by now. I'm going to read a section of it and then we'll read sections of it as we move through. But I'll start there in verse 1 if you'd follow along in God's word. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after they had fasted, prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them off. It's a picture of the early church, way back there in the very beginning. What were they about? We're going to see some of that here this morning. A, uh, a few years ago, our family went to the Renstrom's house, uh, Daniel and Danielle's house. We were invited over there and we had, it was the first time we had these, this specific kind of taco that they make. And they were, they were life-changing. Um, we, we left there and we're like, I have to have that recipe. Not only was the chicken just marinated in something amazing, but he made a homemade sauce that was like a creamy cilantro ranch type of sauce. And you just drizzle it over the taco and just, I mean, you just, it was amazing. And so we walk out, we're just like, have to have uh, all the recipe and all that. So we walked out with the recipe and we went home and we started making the recipe, right? We even named it in our recipe book, named Daniel Tacos. So that our kids would just kind of say, is this a week where we can do Daniel Tacos? Daniel Tacos just became the talk of the town around our house when we stumbled onto it, right? But at one point, uh, it got hard. The most labor-intensive part wasn't what you do with the meat. It was what you do with that sauce. That homemade sauce just was more labor-intensive for us. So one particular night, I don't remember why, but we just didn't have the bandwidth to make the homemade sauce. But it needed... It needed the sauce. So I called an audible and I swung by a place here in town called Chewy's that has a sauce that's basically a legalized drug and uh, this creamy jalapeno ranch. And I I just said, what's the largest one? Do you have a vat? of creamy jalapeno ranch. And they said, the largest one we have is 32 ounces. I said, I'll have two of those. So we loaded up this massive thing of creamy jalapeno ranch. We went back, we made Daniel tacos. It was amazing. And we've done that, listen, dozens of times we've made Daniel tacos with the chewy jalapeno ranch. And at first I was humble about it. I would tell Daniel, you know, we're still making the Daniel tacos. You'd be proud of us. They're delicious but man, you know we, we really don't make it with your original sauce because that just takes longer. So I started to swing by and just buy some from Chewy's. And I would kind of be down in the mouth about it and humble. And then I became, at some point, Daniel knows this, I became more brazen about it. And I, I started to actually talk a little bit of smack and say, I think we've surpassed the original. I think like our Daniel tacos with, with our secret sauce uh, is actually maybe a little bit better. And, and it got to a point where last week, I texted Daniel and said, since we no longer use your sauce, I've renamed Daniel Tacos Mason Tacos. <laughs> so the laws of attribution have slowly changed, right? So if you ever end up going to the Renstrom's house for Daniel Tacos, or you ever end up coming to our house for Mason Tacos, uh, the only difference, everything's exactly the same except the secret sauce. That's the only difference. Now you think about it, how uh, there are a lot of Christians and a lot of Christian books that look at books like the New Testament book of Acts and seek in in their best efforts to reverse engineer the secret sauce of the early church and why they were so successful in mission. It's not that any passage necessarily has All the ingredients that go into what was the secret sauce of the most missionally impacting church in 2,000 years of history. Not that any passage has all the ingredients, but something important is here. Some of the really essential ingredients of the early church are right here. Because something new is happening in the church at Antioch. We saw when we were studying earlier in the book of Acts at the end of chapter 11, we found out that this, in Antioch, is the first place where disciples of Jesus were called by the name Christian. And it wasn't meant to be a compliment. Actually, it was meant to make them feel small. It was the the world around them, the Roman Empire, called them little Christs. That's what Christians meant. You you little people who imitate your, your dead Messiah. That was the idea. It's the first place where they were called Christians. So something important is happening here in Antioch. It's the first time that a local church sees the need to witness and make the gospel known beyond themselves. So it's the first time you see a a commissioning service happen in the book of Acts where they send out missionaries in an intentional effort to, to allow the nations to hear the good news about Jesus Christ. So here in Acts 13 we see three things that went into the secret sauce of missional living in the early church and the first was this, unlikely fellowship. Right there in the first verse of our passage, you have some of the most unlikely people, people you would never expect to be in the same church the same group, at the same table, you would never expect these kind of people, and we'll see them in just a second, but if you've ever uh, watched the movie, The Lord of the Rings, and The Fellowship of the Ring, and there's this moment where everybody kind of comes in this circle around the ring, and they're trying to figure out what to do with it, and it is just the most unlikely gathering of people. You've got an elf and, and a dwarf, and those two, elves and dwarfs, they had centuries-long beef, They were always at war, and yet here's Legolas, and here's Gimli, and they're going to fight side by side. It's the strangest thing to see these people standing side by side. They had been sworn enemies, and now they're fighting together. Well, you walk through as we did in Acts 8, verse 11, and it's kind of like the summoning of the fellowship of the ring, this ragtag group of people. You'd never see people, these kinds of people in the same place fighting together in a common cause, and yet that's exactly what's happening. God is summoning summoning this, this group of people from all kinds of different people groups. He summons a Samaritan, an Ethiopian eunuch, Saul of Tarsus, former persecutor of the faith, A soldier in the Roman army named Cornelius. It's just very shocking and surprising to see these people at the same table. Not that that means that this whole project came off without a hitch. Read Romans 14. Read the book of Galatians. There were problems as they tried to sort this out that we're all one family and yet how different they were. And maybe more shocking still is the fact that in Acts 13, they're not just sharing the same table, but this group, this diverse group, is leading the church at Antioch. You see verse 1? Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. So this interestingly diverse group of people are the leaders, the prophets and the teachers of the church. So let's just walk through one at a time. Barnabas, we'll start with Barnabas. Barnabas is ethnically Jewish and culturally Greek. Simeon and Lucius come next, they're Africans. Menean comes next, he is quote, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch. So he, is, he has deep political connections which would have been a problem if you were a zealot in the first century and you were tired of the thumb of the Roman Empire being on top of you and now you find out one of our prophets and teachers is Menean? Grew up with Herod? This is a problem, right? You, if you're highly suspicious of Rome and all things that waft of Rome, you didn't want this guy counting the offering. You didn't want this guy leading and co-leading a student trip to Nicaragua. You didn't want Manian doing anything, especially teaching. He grew up with the wrong people. And then after him, you have Saul, who would be called Paul, former Pharisee, zealot, persecutor of Christians. Don't miss it, from the very beginning, this was the secret sauce. We looked like the most unlikely fellowship. Some of you might know the name John Perkins, is a, really I think a hero of the faith in modern times. He was born in 1930 in Mississippi under racial segregation as a decorated veteran in World War II to help set free Italy and the invasion there. But then here, stateside, in peaceful protest, while peacefully protesting, he was arrested and beaten and tortured, and his brother was killed by police brutality. And yet, for all the stories that he shares about his hardships in those years, he spends his life after that building bridges, not nursing grudges. He is is a wonder. He is startling to read him And here's one of the things that he says, at the age of 88, he wrote a last manifesto entitled, One Blood, Parting Words to the Church on Race and Love. And here's what he said, we are one blood and we are one body. The gospel doesn't just save us from something, it saves us to something. It saves us to be a part of the family of God, a part of a diverse body of believers. And his good and dear friend Billy Graham said amen. Billy Graham's words were these, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. When John Perkins spoke at his friend Billy Graham's funeral, Perkins relayed a story that many were unfamiliar with and he said this, Billy Graham had first come to Mississippi in 1952 to speak to both blacks and whites. When he arrived, there were ropes up dividing the two races. What Billy did with a local Christian businessman was profound. They literally took down the ropes. This is a secret sauce. All the way back in the beginning, of the church the world didn't know what to call them so they called them christians we don't we look at this group and we don't know what it really is it's too diverse so let's just call them christians you keep reading in other parts of the new testament you come to words like this where the apostle paul talks about the the significance of the atonement for the unity of the body of christ and reconciliation across boundaries. For he, Paul says, Jesus is our peace who made both groups, now in this particular case those both groups are Jews and Gentiles. They were at odds. It's not elves and dwarves. It's not black and white. In this particular passage it's Jews and Gentiles. You'd never see them together and yet Paul says Jesus is our peace. He made those two groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. John Owen would famously write in the 17th century a book called the death of death in the death of Christ and there's a sense in which when you read Ephesians chapter 2 you see the death of hostility the death of division in the death of Christ it was in the secret sauce from the beginning when we became Christians we realized God had done something in Christ to destroy the walls that we had built up by our sin let me put it this way if If there are any people in our culture, if there are any nations in this world where you would rather Jesus come in judgment than mercy, you are out of step with the gospel. Wouldn't it be awesome if the church of Jesus Christ, not just generally, if this church, let's talk us, if the church at Brook Hills manifested to Birmingham that the cross breaks down what our sinful divisions have built up. And that our ultimate identity is not defined by our neighborhoods, it's not defined by our income brackets or our politics or our race, but we are one blood. We are redeemed sinners made one family through the death of Jesus Christ. We are destined to share eternity together. We will sow and reap together. We will sing in Zion together. We will feast together for ages. And guess who knew that was the story that we're living in on this side of Calvary? Answer Antioch did. From the beginning, it was the secret sauce unlikely fellowship. Second, spirit dependence. Spirit dependence, and we'll just fill this in if you're taking notes. The Spirit comes to gathered worship. That shouldn't be surprising. You know, if you read through the New Testament, you see in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, it says, Be filled with the Spirit. And it's talking about in the gathering. When you come to church and you sing songs to one another, be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit is active in the gathering of the church. That's what's going on in Ephesians 5, 18. That's what's going on in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. The Spirit comes and He's handing out gifts. And when He hands out gifts, the church gets stronger. Spirit is active, edifying, and building up the body when we gather for worship. The Spirit comes to worship. And what's going on here in our passage, you see those words, as they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said something. They're worshiping, and amid their worship, the Holy Spirit breaks in and starts speaking and starts giving leadership, and starts initiating and mobilizing the church. Get this, the voice of the Holy Spirit directing the mission of the church is not incidentally connected to the worship of the church. As they were worshiping, the Holy Spirit said, and this really shouldn't be surprising to us, We talk about worship, nurture, and mission. We realize that those are interdependent. They they are mutually reinforcing. Each one of them makes the other one stronger. Worship and mission aren't in an adversarial relationship pulling against the other one. It's not a zero-sum game. When mission wins, worship suffers. And when worship wins, mission suffers. That's not what's going on here. Worship and mission are inextricably related. Worship is the fuel of mission and worship is the goal of mission. What happens in worship? What happens in worship is this, we come together and we say among one another, the Lord reigns. And what happens in mission? We say among the nations, the Lord reigns. In other words, worship just changes directions. Mission is worship changing directions. In worship, we ascribe ultimate worth to Jesus Christ. In mission, we ascribe ultimate worth to Jesus Christ. So Barnabas and Saul are appointed to do. They've been singled out by the Spirit. The Spirit is tapping shoulders in this gathered worship event so that they're gonna now go to a new place and ascribe glory to the worth of Jesus Christ. As they worship, the Spirit spoke. As they worship, the Spirit mobilized the church for mission. So the Spirit comes to gather worship. Next point, the Spirit guides a praying people. Isn't it true for you? I know it's been true for me in my life. Um, Sometimes I want guidance, but I don't wanna pray. I want the clarity that comes, when the Holy Spirit gives direction, but I don't want to get in the place where the clarity falls, namely meditating on his word, gathering with his people, right? That's where the clarity comes, it's not incidental. The Spirit guides a praying people. So Luke doesn't tell us, although this would be fascinating, wouldn't it? Luke doesn't tell us how the Spirit spoke. We don't know, you know, was an intercom basically turned on over gathered worship and suddenly there's this voice and we all look up Um, Is that what was going on there? I don't think we necessarily have reason to assume that it was something like that. I think, so I'm gonna share a suggestion. I can't absolutely prove this, but I'll try to make it plausible. I'll show you where I get it from. I'm gonna attempt a reconstruction. Verse one begins by telling us there were prophets there. There were teachers as well, but there were prophets there. And that's notable because prophets have said some things earlier in this same church. Acts chapter 11, same church, verse 27 and 28. It says, in those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to where? To Antioch, same church. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. And it was fulfilled. Next words, this took place during the reign of Claudius. So, this is my suggested effort to harmonize these my guess is just like the prophet agabus in antioch had a word from god about a coming famine so in 13 verse 1 and 2 agabus or another one of the prophets that are mentioned here got a word from god about barnabas and saul and then what do you see the church doing they don't just run off with it they fast and they pray it's a sense of testing this word, discerning. Was this indeed from God? And it clearly resonated with the church because they all affirm it. They lay their hands. They say, it was God. God is clearly leading these two men to go off and represent Jesus on the island of Cyprus and beyond. The direction comes from God wonderfully in the context of the gathered worship of God's people. And notice how it says that they were fasting. They fasted on both sides of this. They fasted on their way before the Holy Spirit spoke. And then after the Holy Spirit revealed it, they fasted again before they sent them out. You just see this church, as we've seen this before walking through Acts, this church is just marinated in desperation for God, hunger for God. That fasting wasn't them kind of having. Trying to accumulate purchasing power with God. That's not the idea. The fasting was there in order to say to their bodies, something else is more urgent than food. The mission of the kingdom, the advancement of the gospel among all the nations. Why do they call people like this, right? What's going on in this passage? These are the Christians. This is the secret sauce. From the beginning, it's been a praying people. From the beginning, it's been an unlikely fellowship. And third, disruptive witness. So unlikely fellowship, spirit dependence, and disruptive witness. I use the term witness there because it's what Jesus promised right in the early goings of the book of Acts. We receive kind of an advance program for everywhere the book of Acts is about to go. Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. Now what's a witness do? A witness is called to a stand and when the witness goes into the box, the witness is supposed to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's what a witness does. Tell us what happened. Tell us what you saw. Tell us what you heard. What do you see when you read Uh, The Apostle John writes his first epistle, 1 John, and he says, we told you what we saw. We told you what we heard. We told you what our hands had touched. We We were faithful witnesses. We told the truth about who Jesus is and why he came. Witnesses have that one job. They were not political revolutionaries. They were witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the point, the Spirit sends us to speak the gospel. The Spirit sends us to speak the gospel. Here's something that we're, I talked about this last week, so I won't belabor it, but um, we're in a, in a phase, an emphasis as a church, two years long emphasis called Too Strong. Year one was about who are we as a church? What is, the ch- what is the church and what does the church do? So that was year one, we talked a lot about that. And then year two, now we're pivoting. We're in week two of year two. And now we're talking a lot this year, uh, Lord willing, about the advancement of the mission. Personal evangelism, making the gospel known, shining his lights, being good neighbors, gospel-shaped hospitality. That's what we're going to talk about, not just Sunday mornings, but in all kinds of various contexts. We're going to be talking about these things. Knowing the gospel, being competent in the gospel, getting to a place where you're willing to take risks to have conversations, to share the hope that you have with people around you, people in your workplace, people at your school, people next to you, family members. Here's the thing, we see those words the Holy Spirit said. The Holy Spirit has been saying this, go and share the gospel, he's been saying that for 2000 years. This is, look, the year two emphasis at Brook Hills is not some trendy thing, it's very old. This is not innovative. This is the secret sauce from the beginning. Here's a fun fact in, in the book of Acts, there are 22 occasions when God speaks directly to individuals with quotation marks over it. He speaks directly to individuals or groups of people. And guess what? The majority of God's direct speech in Acts is directing people towards going and speaking the gospel. Here's a sampling. Acts 5.20. God says, go, stand in the temple courts and tell the people the full message of this new life. Fast forward, Acts 8.26. Go south to the road, the desert road. That's gonna be a, that's gonna be a conversation about the gospel. Acts 9.15, go. There's a pattern forming here. Go, <laughs> this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. Acts 10.20, Simon. Three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them he 's going to end up telling them about Jesus, Acts thirteen verse two in our passage, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Fast forward Acts chapter sixteen. Come over, God gives a vision from a Macedonian person. Come over to Macedonia. It's God's beckoning his apostles to come speak the gospel. Acts 18.10, I am with you and no one is going to attack you and harm you because I have many people in this city. What's the, the subtext of those words is, I got a lot of people I'm going to save, so start talking. Say the message that I use to change hearts. Get it out there. Open your mouth and speak it. So when when God gave impressions and words and prophetic insights to the early church, just note, it wasn't mystical instructions about my inner life. It wasn't lathering people up into an emotional frenzy. The Spirit basically says this all over Acts. He says to the church, remember, You have life and they don't. Start telling them about it. You have hope and they don't. Explain the hope that you have. Testify to the hope that you have. And that's what Paul's about to do. The Spirit says, I want Paul and I want Barnabas to start gossiping the gospel. That's what he does. And then we find out this next truth. The gospel both enlightens and exposes. It's often said that the same sun that melts butter hardens clay. And you see that effect. The Apostle Paul says, we speak the same message, but some to some it's a fragrance of life leading to life, and to others it's a fragrance of death leading to death. It has a hardening effect, but it also has a softening effect. Here's what happens in our passage if you're looking still at it. Verse four. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus, arriving at Salamis, They proclaimed the word of God, there's the verbal proclamation, proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. They also had John as their assistant, and when they had traveled the whole island as far as Paphos, they came across a sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was the proconsul, Sergius, he was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear the word of God. Talk about teeing it up. Sergius Paulus says, come tell me the word of God. That's what's going on here. But, verse 8, don't miss this, Elimus the sorcerer, that is the meaning of his name, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at Elimus and said... You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, you son of the devil and enemy of all that is right. Won't you ever stop perverting, or some translations it says making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. Now look, the Lord's hand is against you. You are going to be blind and will not see the sun for a time. Immediately, a mist and darkness fell on him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then, When he saw what happened, the proconsul believed because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. There is so much wild stuff happening right there in this passage. So they arrive southwestern port of the island, Paphos. It's the capital. They're coming into the big city and they get there and crazy things start happening. Proconsul, Sergius Paulus, basically KIV at Paphos. That's basically his, his governor. And he says, "I want you to come tell me the word of God." And he's got a sidekick. He's got an advisor, ironically named Bar Jesus. Jesus, the name meaning salvation. That's why they named him Jesus because he would be the savior. This guy's name is Bar Jesus. Anybody know what Bar means? Son, son of salvation is this guy's name. And yet Peter's going to say, uh, Paul's going to say, "I've got a new name for you, son of the devil." Because you're just like your father and he's a father of lies and you are promoting lies while we're preaching truth. The son of salvation interferes. What's going on here? Unprecedented gospel opportunity is accompanied by blatant spiritual opposition. You ever seen it before? The gospel's being made clear, sharing your testimony, you see somebody else doing ministry and work and and then just wall goes up where did this come from? Why all of a sudden, everything halts? That's what's going on here. We, um, my wife and I had dinner with a small group yesterday afternoon, it was an awesome time and they invited us to go out and join them in, uh, for, for dinner somewhere. And so we sat down, we couldn't all fit at one table, so we were a bunch of different circular tables and uh, at one point we're, we're sitting at our table and we're just getting to know each other and so my wife has an opportunity to share a little bit of her testimony and while she's sharing her testimony uh, she gets to the part where um, what she's describing would have been extremely painful to walk through in the moment. An Extremely painful experience in her life in college um, and yet there's something in that part of the story that just always electrifies my faith. I heard it hundreds of times because she says, I was running in college. I, I was running from God, but God was chasing me and he caught me. And for, for a moment there, I was so convicted that what I was doing and the way that I was living was wrong and there was a sense in which I wanted to turn away from him And there was a sense in which I very much wanted to turn toward him. And there was this battle going on in my heart and in my soul. And we know who won. Here she is. Praise God. You have an enemy. And he doesn't want you to find life in Jesus. He wants you to doubt God's goodness, he wants you to distrust God's word. He wants you shamed and isolated. He's fine with you fitting Jesus into your life as long as Jesus doesn't get control of your life, as long as Jesus isn't in first place. This morning there is a straight path to the Lord and that straight path is called repentance and faith laying aside sin, laying aside our false gods and our substitute gods and running to the one hope of the world, Jesus Christ who died for our sins and rose again. That's a gospel. That can get you down a straight path to life in Jesus Christ. And and Paul says, you, Elimus, the moment you start talking, you're making straight paths crooked. You're making it hard for somebody to make his way to life In Jesus Christ, it's a battle for the heart going on here in this passage. You know, the battle for someone's heart and someone's soul, it often plays out in ways that aren't visible to the naked eye. We can't see what's happening, but that's the wild thing about Acts chapter 13. We actually see someone named Elimus standing there telling Sergius Paulus, this is bogus. Don't believe these people. Elimus is trying to prevent Sergius from seeing the truth and Elimus ends up blind. And that might seem like a judgment from God. And it might seem like a judgment from God because that's exactly what it is. The punishment fits the crime. He sought to keep Sergius in darkness and his world goes dark. Paul says, Paul's words, you make crooked the straight path of the Lord. The Lord's hand is against you. That's sobering, isn't it? Does that mean that Elimus walks out of the room feeling his way and somebody's having to lead him by the hand out of the room It says, does that mean that there's no chance for Elimus? I mean, judgment comes, the Lord's hand is against you. Does that mean there's no chance for Elimus because he walks out blind? No, somebody else in this passage was struck blind when he opposed the gospel. Guess who it was? Saul of Tarsus. Paul, the guy doling out blindness, experienced this very, he had to be led out of a room by the hand earlier. We've seen these kinds of patterns already in the text of scripture. So there's a kind of tension in the passage that basically says this, be sobered, but don't lose hope. Verse eleven isn't here to teach Christians the art of blinding people. Verse eleven isn't here to kind of create militant, angry Christians whose favorite thing to do is dole out blindness. God, do that thing you did in verse eleven. It's my favorite verse in the New Testament. Go, go, yeah, him. Yeah, it's <laughs> that's not what this passage is about, right? This verse eleven is here to tell us there's a war for souls. There's a war for the human heart. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, every square inch of creation is claimed by Christ and counterclaimed by Satan. There's a war. Fascinatingly, in the narrative, when Elimus is led out by the hand, Sergius hears and believes. Those two seem connected, right? Think about it. The voice of the enemy now silenced, now Sergius can believe. And and it says that Sergius was astonished, note the verbiage, at the teaching of the Lord. Not just astonished at the blindness thing. The blindness thing, the miracle got his attention but the word did the work. It was the gospel that arrested his attention and astonished him. The spirit sends us to speak the gospel. The gospel enlightens and exposes and finally the scope of the work is the size of the world. That's what's beginning here in earnest in Acts chapter 13. As we come to Acts 13, the focus is shifting from Jerusalem, which was the headquarters of the gospel mission. Now it's shifting to Antioch. The focus is shifting from Peter to Paul. Peter the apostle to the Jews, Paul the apostle to the Gentiles. And that's exactly how it was set up at the beginning. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you will become my witnesses to the Jew first, right? As Paul would say in Romans chapter one, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. That's what happens here. Peter's gonna keep ministry. He's got about 20 more years on the clock before he's executed. But Luke and the camera crew, from Acts 13 on, follows Paul. If you just flip over, I'm not gonna ask, you could do that later on. If you just t- start turning pages and looking at subheadings, it's Paul, Paul, Paul. Everybody, the, the, the camera crew's traveling with Paul. And Acts 13 is key and the developing story of the book of Acts because it marks the full-scale launch of Paul as the apostle to the nations, the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul is catapulted into the Roman world to bear witness to Christ. So Luke, even in the way that Luke writes, allow me to geek out with you for just a second. And the way that Luke writes this narrative is, is intentionally constructed in six panels. I'll just review three because up to this point there are only three panels, but we'll see the other three emerging later. Here's what he does. After he talks about the early goings and the exaltation of Jesus, ascension to the right hand, spirit poured out on the church, he tells some stories in that first panel, and then he summarizes what just happened with a formula. And then he tells some other stories about what God is doing. And then he summarizes what just happened with a formula. And then he does that again and again, six panels. So here are the panels. At the end of all these storytellings in Acts chapter six, we see the first summary. Notice, so the word of God spread, and the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. After that summary, he starts telling other stories of what God did through the gospel and through his people. And then you get another summary. The end of that panel, chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. And then another wave of stories is told. And right before our passage opens, we see this summary But the word of God spread and multiplied. And after they had completed their relief mission, Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem taking along John, who is called Mark. What, what is Luke doing in these panels? What he's doing, it's not just got literary formulas. They're theological. They're signaling that the gospel is spreading. It's demolishing geographic, geographic boundaries. It's demolishing cultural boundaries. Everywhere it goes, it triumphs. It went to Jerusalem and it triumphed. It went to Judea and Samaria and it triumphed. And now it's going to the ends of the earth. That's what's going on right here. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Acts chapter one through seven. You shall be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria, Acts chapter eight through 12. And you shall be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, which starts today in Acts 13. What were we doing when the world was turned upside down in the first century. What marked us out back when they first called us Christians? Our unlikely fellowship, our dependence on the Holy Spirit, and our disruptive witness. That's the secret sauce. Don't tamper with the recipe. (laughs) That's our call. Stay faithful and don't mess with the recipe.